0: We're almost done with this heinous month. And as far as I'm concerned, it can't end soon enough. Even today's bounce at Dow gaining 359 points has to be climbing 1.60%, NASDAQ pole vaulting 2.26%, September has still been ugly. I've been warning you that this is historically the worst month of the year ever since August ended. Replete with a nasty 10-day close, and that's precisely what we got. But now that September is almost over, let's focus on the future, meaning next week's game plan. It starts on Monday when we get results from the mighty Thor Industries THO kind, which dominates the RV and motorhome industry. When the pandemic first hit, Thor sold off hard as investors figured that we'd have a normal recession, and in a recession, RV sales get slaughtered. Sure enough, we got a slowdown. We got mass unemployment but we also got an incredible boom in the RV business because these things represent one of the only safe ways to go on vacation. Since then, Thor's stock has soared, although it tends to pull back every time people get excited about a potential vaccine. I like this one. I'm betting RVs remain a vacation staple for a lot longer than you might expect. Tuesday, we hear from two companies that could potentially deliver upside surprises that might turn your heads. First is McCormick. That's the spice maker you know that I've always been a fan of, right? And then there's Micron, which is the chip maker, which is a little more controversial. Last time, McCormick reported a fantastic lights out quarter and the stock exploded higher. But then it flew too close to the sun. And so far this month, what it's done is pulled back from 211 to 191. Remember, September's been bad. And, And right now, it's only slightly above where it was before that great quarter. Right now, Wall Street's obsessed with what will happen when the pandemic comes to an end. Will people still cook at home with McCormick spices? Will they still use as much Frank's hot sauce? I say, wait a second. People have developed new habits. In many cases, they discovered they like to cook. Meanwhile, the food service business that hurt McCormick last time, it has improved. To me, that smells like another upside surprise. Though at this point, the analysts, they might not care, and they might not get behind it. Micron is really, really difficult to get to. See, this is a commodity semiconductor play that sells a product with not-so-hot pricing right now. Micron's core DRAM business could be saved by their disk drive business, but I don't see the stock worrying unless management says they see tightness coming in DRAMs. Oh, boy, then you'll get a terrific move up. And you'll say, why didn't Jim just say, tell us to buy it? Tuesday night, we get the first debate. That's between President Trump and Vice President Biden. You know what we're going to be doing here? We're going to be watching for any stock market implications, including any talk from Biden about raising the capital gains rate. Something that seems likely if Biden wins and the Democrats will also take the Senate. Wednesday will take the temperature of the housing market. This is the hottest part of the economy out in the cloud. As long as mortgage rates remain low, I think we'll keep seeing strong home sales. But there is one problem: there's not enough homes, not enough homes for sale. Lots of people worried that the home builders have peaked. I don't think that happens as long as there's some, that the supply is tight. That means that the stocks are cheap. But you see, if there's a shortage of homes and they don't have enough inventory to capitalize on it, well, then they're going to get clobbered. So it's time to be a little selective. Don't just buy the group. The two that have the, t- the supply situation under control, in my view, are Toll and D.R. Horton. They're the ones that make the most sense at this point in the cycle. Although I'm, I've always been a fan of Lennar uh, for a decade. It's just that those are two that right now seem more on point. Thursday is the official start of earnings season, and, we, and we're about to get results that reflect another three full months of COVID-19. As always, PepsiCo gets the ball rolling, and I expect very good things here. That's why we own Pep for the charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Now, this stock's down 14 points from its February high. It sports a 3% yield. I think that means there's less downside risk than most with interest rates so low. Plus, I'm betting PepsiCo's having a terrific quarter because their free to lay business is the snack game. And we are snacking like crazy from home, right? The work-at-home people, they can't stop eating Frito-Lays. I like this one ahead of the quarter. I'd buy it. We also hear from ConAgra, CAG, and I like them too. I'm betting their frozen food business is incredibly strong right now. Millennials love it. I have less conviction, though, with ConAgra, in part because it only yields 2.4%, even as the stock is much cheaper on an earnings basis. Still, at these levels, I'm on the sidelines for, uh, let's just say, its lack of longer longer term consistency then there are two more stocks that i need a better read on constellation brands stz and bed bath and beyond bbby constellation's beer business is killing it with consumers even as bars are closing at a frightening pace doesn't matter. The consumer side of the business is much larger. Constellation has the fastest growing portfolio of beers, including Corona and Modelo, along with the rapidly growing Spike Seltzer biz. I suspect they'll have a good quarter. Though it feels like nothing these guys do is good enough for this for the stock. I mean it doesn't seem to matter. I mean, I always want to hear about their investment in cannabis growth, the Canadian cannabis business. But right now, that whole industry comes down to a Democratic sweep in November, coupled with Biden changing his mind on full legalization. Cannabis home base in Canada is just too saturated. Go read that Aurora cannabis and you'll know what I mean. Read that conference call. It's terrible. As for Bed Bath & Beyond, this one's difficult because it's a turnaround story. Turnarounds are tough to pull off, even in the best of times. And they often lead to disappointment in the worst. I think CEO Mark Tritton's is doing, doing an amazing job. And Bed Bath sells housewares, one of the strongest categories in the entire economy. We heard that from Jeff Gannett the other day from Macy's. But this company never spent enough on digital, and Triton's still in the process of improving its once terrible cost structure. Honestly, I'd be willing to take a chance on Bed Bath. If it's not for one thing, I'm going to try to explain this as simply as I can. The stock has had a huge run in the last few weeks, and if it keeps climbing in the quarter, I think it'll come in too hot. I have been a big believer in this turnaround, And from when it was, was, say, 10-11, and I'm not going to give up on it now, but the bar is very high thanks to this recent rally. Plus, Bed Bath is very heavily shorted. People betting against it. 60% of the float is short, which is insane. And those shorts will try to foment panic by slamming the stock down after the quarter's announced. Just wait and see. The numbers will come out. The shorts will blast it even before the conference call. And it could pull back hard as people think, wow, must be a bad quarter. I want you to be ready for that possibility. Watch carefully, because if the shorts do push Bed Bath to a low level, uh, low teen, say, after a solid quarter, then I'm going to come out here and say you got to buy it. Finally, on Friday, we get the Labor Department's non-farm payroll report. As the clock ticks closer for the election, this employment data gets more and more important. I think Friday's number will disappoint because we haven't gotten any more stimulus. And we're now experiencing a second wave of COVID. Maybe it won't matter as much as it usually does because this is a highly unusual election. Uh, Between the pandemic, the protests, sometimes turning to riots, the empty Supreme Court seat, and of course, the Fed trying to keep rates as low well as possible. But the unemployment number is very weak. It will absolutely have an impact. The bottom line, we're finally kissing the month of September goodbye next week. And I say good riddance. I don't know if October will be much better, but I doubt it could be much worse. Let's go to David in New York. David. Hi, Jen. How are you? I am good, David. How are a, you? I have a question regarding uh, Cisco Corporation. I've owned it since June of this year. Uh, it, I, mean, I bought it at sixty three dollars. It has bounced down to the low fifties and then up to sixty eight in recent weeks. Now at sixty two, what's your assessment of this company in view of the uh, you know current environment with food distribution and closed restaurants? Uh, right. um, well, that, that is my explain. worry, sir. I mean, I, well, first of all, it's a well worn company. Second, that dividend is big. Uh, At almost 3%. But I am going to have to defer because I see so many restaurants uh, going under. um, As we get into colder weather, it's just going to be worse. So I'm going to have to say, no, this one is not for me. Let's go to Brandon in my home state of New Jersey. Brandon. It may not be Brandon. Hello. Is is that
2: Brandon? It's it's Hayden. Hayden? No, it's Hayden. Excellent. Hayden, what's going on? uh, And I'm in Kentucky. But anyway, um, my question is on Reynolds. I heard about it. Uh, whenever you first brought it on several months back, I uh, made a little money on it, and I sold it a while back. But after earnings, and it, I've seen it's just been dropping down like eight percent in three months. Right. I'm wondering do you think it's going to be? These to stocks be a waste are not. You
0: know, hey, I'm going to tell you: these stocks are not working. Okay. When I say they're not working, what I mean by that is, is that people have decided that these soft goods, that these are pantry stocking compa- uh, companies, and we're not. St- We're we're not doing that anymore. So therefore, people are letting these go, and I'm not going to get in the way of that maelstrom. Michael in California. Michael. Booyah, Jim. Booyah.
2: So as you likely know, legendary big wave surfer Laird Hamilton and his company, Laird Superfoods, just went public. Given that industry is trending more towards health-conscious foods, do you think consumers should ride the wave or let this one pass? Thanks a lot.
0: Yeah, I know. Um... (laughs) You know, we. I, I I know I sound repetitive, but I I like beyond beyond meat. That's the one I like. Uh, I just think that you don't want to have a bu- you know million shits in this game because then you're going to end up with like a UNFI that blew you up or a Hain that blew you up. And I don't want that. I have faith that Ethan Brown is going to deliver beyond meat, and that's what I'm doing because that is the. Best in show, and I have always been a best of breed guy no matter what. All right, September's been ugly. Thank heavens for today, but it's been ugly. Uh, But we're almost done, and I don't think October could be worse. Well, man, money tonight, as people look for ways to get out of the house but still stay isolated from others, could a company like Brunswick make sense here? Yeah, the boating company. I'm talking with the CEO. Then the next tech debut is on deck. It's Palantir, except for a $22 billion thing called a direct listing, we'll explain. I'm talking about what to expect. And should you buy the stock of Costco in bulk here? I'll tell you how the Wholesale Club's business is made for this moment. So stay with Kramer.
1: Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer, hashtag madtweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com. or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com.
0: All the great outdoor stocks. After COVID hit, we saw an incredible rally in anything associated with outdoor recreation—RVs, camping, boats. Basically, the only way to go on vacation while maintaining social distancing. Lately, though, these stocks have cooled off along with the weather, but not the companies. Take Brunswick Corporation, the king of the boating space. Think Boston Whale or Mercury Andrews. Here's a stock that surged to a multi-year high of $74 at the end of July for pulling back to roughly 20, down 20% to $58 and change today. Brunswick reported a magnificent quarter on July 30th. And while the stock initially rallied, it quickly gave up its gains. And that was the tell that Wall Street was turning against the outdoor plays. Now, you could argue this business is seasonal. It's a lot less fun going boating in December. But I think this year's different. Brunswick already had lean inventories, throwing the insane level of demand we saw over the summer, and I think they're poised to keep making a fortune. But don't take it from me. Let's check in with David Folks. He's the CEO of Brunswick. To get a better sense of how his business is holding up now that summer's officially over, Mr. Folks, welcome back to Mad Money.
2: Thank you very much, Jim. Great to be here. Okay,
0: so, David, I think there's a misperception on Wall Street. I think Wall Street feels that, yes, we had this kind of blip up because of a pandemic uh, and it was great social distancing for a while. But that trends over. So therefore, you shouldn't own Brunswick because it's going into the winter. But this time, your sales have held up much better.
2: They have. You know, last time we spoke, Jim, was in the middle of the selling season. Obviously, we had huge demand. We were up, I think, 40 percent over prior year, but this season has really extended. And even in the presence of tight field inventories, just in early September, sales are still up significantly, I mean really significantly versus last year. Now, inventories are low, so supply is going to be a bit constrained, but our production is going up quickly. We are hiring people, producing as fast as we can. We've hired almost a 1,000 people over the last several months just to keep producing, And even as we exit the selling season in the northern markets, we need to keep our production levels up to fill tremendous dealer demand for restocking in in the first part and even through most of 2021.
0: Okay, so David, what a lot of uh, analysts tell me is, okay, Jim, you're too wild about these situations. Here's why. The pandemic's almost over. Uh, and once it's over, it's just going to go back to the way it was. I think that's wrong on two assumptions. One is that the pandemic's about to end. But the second is, I think people rediscovered boating. I mean, I, I've always been a boater, but now people who have never who never boated, particularly women, by the way, want
2: to vote. Yeah, you know, as we said earlier, Jim, in June and, and most through most of the second quarter, about 40 percent of all the boats we sold were to people who had never boated before. And you were right, that over-indexed on younger people, more women and more ethnic minorities. So a great new cohort of, of younger people and more women coming into the boating space. And I think really re-energizing it in a way that will carry the boating, uh, boating volumes forward into multiple years. And of course the low, the low uh, field inventories are generating tremendous restocking demand from our dealers, too. So we expect uh, next year to be extremely strong. And I
0: think that you're putting your money where your mouth is. I mean, uh, if things were really bad, you wouldn't be
2: doing a repurchase. And if things were really bad, you wouldn't be paying down the revolving credit facility. Yeah, we know we see the pullback, as you mentioned, Jim, which is really across the leisure uh, sector. But... W- Our cash generation has been very strong, and we we felt it was the right time to go back into the market. We expect to complete $100 million of share repurchases uh, this year, and we think we're taking advantage of this pullback because our stock has plenty of room to run.
0: Now, how about the different kinds of boats? Are people trading up from my 17 foot to the 26 like my wife wants? Are people buying more expensive boats? We have a lot of different lines, and there's some really, really gorgeous boats that are, are more expensive than the one I have.
2: Well, you know, one of the advantages Brunswick has is this tremendous portfolio that goes from value boats through uh, you know, kind of mid-value mid boats up to these really premium brands like Boston Whaler and Ray, And so we have entry points for everybody. People certainly are trading up, but they're really entering the market all up and down our portfolio, which is quite remarkable. Now, this
0: Freedom Boat Club, you're not up to... You are,
2: you are much fewer
0: locations when even when we saw each other last, you now have 243 locations. Tell people about that. That's another way to get involved for those who, who want to boat.
2: It is. It's a shared access model. It's a club you pay to join and then you pay a monthly fee that gets you access to a number of boats in a particular location, essentially a fleet that you book on an app. Uh, but it also gets you reciprocal access. So if you go on vacation, you can join the, the local club in the area that you're vacationing. As you mentioned, Jim, we had about 170 locations when we bought Freedom Boat Club just about a year ago. We now have 243 locations, membership up about 30 uh, percent just this year. Twice as many women uh, join Freedom Boat Club as hmm. Buy Boats. The demographic is three years younger, so we're accessing a you know, completely new demographic here with Freedom Boat Club. Very exciting growth, tremendous synergies with our core business because they use Brunswick boats and Mercury engines and our parts and accessories. So this has been a wild success for us.
0: Now, David, I, I go out boating. I, I actually fortunately have a place that's on the canal. So I see who's driving the boats. I think because maybe there's no camp or there's nothing to do or people do it at home. I see 17, 18, 19 year olds driving boats, beautiful boats, by the way, that normally I wouldn't have been trusted unless you're like 25, 30. If, has
2: the age gone down of, of people who are who, who are learning the boat? It definitely has, Jim. You know, just between 2019 and 2020, the average age of a, a Brunswick boat buyer went from low 50s to high uh, 40s, But some of our brands, are heyday, which is a, a value wake sports uh, brand, the average age of a, of a buyer is about 39. Ooh. And certainly the usage of the boat is by people that are much younger. If you think about the fact that there are about 10 to 12 million registered recreational boats in the U.S., but about 140 million people every year, participate in boating in some way in the U.S., you know that there are a lot of young people uh, participating in boating, even if they don't own the boat.
0: All right, one last question, uh, speaking of young people. Young people like electric vehicles. Now, I know there's this outfit, short in Sweden. They've got a chargeable uh,
2: boat. Any hope that we could see uh, some sort of EV from Brunswick? Uh, we have a lot of activity going on on electrification, Jim. Um, Marine is a bit of a different set of physics to road vehicles, but but certainly electric power is coming in. It was very purposeful when we bought power products, which included the leading advanced battery uh, manufacturer in marine, MasterVolt. That's part of our portfolio, and that is an area where we're working a lot. So you will see electrification come in around the edges of marine. It will be a long time before it replaces some of the core product. When you think about when electric vehicles became popular, it was when they were able to to demonstrate utility that was equivalent to a conventional vehicle. And we're a little way away from that. But uh, what's this space? Certainly, we will see uh, more electric boats in the future.
0: All right. That's terrific. Well, anyway, the stocks come down. Anybody who's ever boated knows that it's just the most fun thing in the world. I'm surprised your stock's gotten this low, David. I think it's too cheap. Obviously, you do, too, or you wouldn't have announced that repurchase. Thank you so much.
2: You are very welcome, Jim. Great to see you.
0: One of my themes is these issues, whether it be cooking, whether it be Costco, whether it be boating, this stuff is now ingrained. It's not going away. Unfortunately, neither is COVID. David Folkes, Brunswick Corp, Symbol BC. I like it. Over the last few weeks, we've gotten a slew of red-hot initial public offerings, coupled with a nasty sell-off, especially in the NASDAQ, because money managers need to sell their existing holdings if they want to participate in these incredible deals. Fortunately for the bulls, the IPO market seems to be winding down for the moment. But there's one more big deal coming next week. Just don't call it an IPO. I'm talking about the direct listing of Palantir Technologies, the data mining software company that dominates the surveillance space. If you don't remember, a direct listing is when a company just lists a certain number of shares on an exchange without raising any new money. That's how Spotify came public in 2018. And last year, we saw the same thing from Slack. But even when it comes to direct listings, Palantir is different. The company's always been kind of secretive simply because that's the business they're in. On top of that, they've got a weird corporate structure designed to ensure that the founders always have a controlling interest. And some of their work is controversial in the current political environment. Still, I think this will be another hot one. So I want you to be prepared before Palantir's direct listing, which is currently expected next Wednesday. Although the date's already been pushed back a couple of times. So what exactly do these guys do and why should you care? Okay, Palantir got its start building software for the intelligence community at the height of the war on terror. Though since then, they've expanded into working with commercial clients. Now the company has two platforms. There's Palantir Gotham and Palantir Foundry. The former was designed to help defense and intelligence agencies who were hunting for needles in a haystack in Iraq and Afghanistan. Think big data, except instead of helping businesses hunt for new customers. They were helping the government hunt for insurgents. Palantir's platform is now used widely by governments worldwide. But once you've figured out how to search through different types of data to find patterns and then present those patterns to the people who call the shots, you've got something that's useful for more than just hunting terrorists. That's where Palantir Foundry comes in. This is their commercial data platform. We're talking energy, transportation, financial services, healthcare. The whole world's going digital right now, and everybody wants to get more out of their data. When you combine the commercial and government businesses, management estimates they have $119 billion total addressable market. Now, the thing about Palantir is that these guys are very good at what they do. Just look at the numbers. The company's put up some incredible growth because it's bringing in all these new commercial clients. In 2019, Palantir had 25% revenue growth. Eh. In the first half of 2020, they had 49% revenue growth. That's an incredible acceleration. Right now, the company has 125 customers in 36 industries, spanning more than 150 countries. They're winning lots of new business, but they're also winning more business from old customers. How about profitability? Okay, in the first half of 2019, the company lost $167 million dollars excluding stock-based compensation. In the first half of 2020, they made $17 million, excluding stock-based compensation. That's some incredible margin improvement. In addition to generating more revenue, Palantir has also become more efficient. These days, it only takes them 14 days to install their software with a new customer, down more than five-fold from the year before. Needless to say, an IT project that takes two weeks is a lot less expensive than an IT project that takes two months. Uh, And by the way, in some cases, they can turn their platform up and get it running within six hours. However, there's some real negatives here, so I want you to hear everything. For one thing, Palantir has a lot of stock-based compensation, which I just asterisk, right? They're paying a fortune to attract and retain talent, even if the cost is in new equity, not cash. Speaking of cash, the company's a long way from becoming cash flow positive. In the first half of the year, they had negative $226 million in cash flow from operations. That's not great. Basically, Palantir still loses lots of money relies heavily on raising new capital in order to keep running. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. When you've got a huge growth opportunity, you need to spend to take advantage of it. But it's definitely worth keeping in mind. Now, Palantir has also given us a ton of guidance, way more than you expect from a company that's going public. They've got a forecast for the current quarter for the full year and even for next year. A lot of people shine away from that. Management is talking about 46 to 47 percent revenue growth for the current quarter, slowing to 41 to 43 percent for the full year, which suggests that the fourth quarter could be not so hot. For 2021, they'll only say to expect more than 30 percent revenue growth, which at least gives us a floor. Meanwhile, Palantir's operating income has turned positive, though, uh, when you can exclude all the stock based compensation. That guidance changes the story in good ways and bad. On the bad side, the accelerating revenue growth from the first half looks a lot less impressive if it slows to 42% for the full year and as low as 30% next year. Maybe management's simply trying to underpromise and overdeliver, but given the, the uh, grandiose tone of Palantir's perspectives, I find that unlikely. The whole thing starts with a dramatic letter from co-founder and CEO Alex Karp, basically excoriating the rest of the technology industry in, in an effort to set Palantir apart. On the positive side, though, those operating profit numbers, they look great if you believe they can hit those targets. They're still burning a lot of cash and issuing a lot of stock. But the margins are absolutely headed in the right direction. What else do we need to take into account? I don't know if it matters to you, but Palantir is willing to take on uh, more ethically dubious work from the government. We're talking say, uh, stuff that, uh, that, that, let's say, Google refuses to do. More importantly, from the stock market's perspective, a direct listing is not an IPO. Typically, IPOs have lockups on insider selling. You have to wait six months before the executives and the private investors can flood the market with additional shares. Palantir said to lock up uh, all but 20 percent of the shares held by existing investors until early next year. Though uh, compared to the most recent red hot IPOs, 20 percent of the float is still pretty high. So just beware, the lockup ends sooner than you might expect. Finally, Palantir's corporate governance protocols are borderline obnoxious. I haven't seen this egregious uh, kind of rule since the uh, canceled WeWork deal, frankly. See, Palantir's three founders get what's called Class F shares with variable voting power. No matter what, they'll always control 49.9% of the voting power, even if they sell down their position. Plus, as the Wall Street Journal reported this morning, the company does a lot of so-called, and I quote, related party transactions. For example, the company lent $25 million to one of its founders in 2016, and he only repaid it in August. Right now, this stuff may not seem like it matters, but if Poundter starts screwing up, just remember, the common shareholders can't do anything about it. You're just going to sell if it doesn't work. So how much should you be willing to pay for this thing? We've heard that the stock could start trading around $10, which would value the company at $22 billion from the get-go. At $10, the stock will be trading at 20 times sales, or 16 times next year's numbers, assuming they come in at the low end of the forecast. That makes Palantir cheaper than recent deals, although it's also got much slower growth. The bottom line, I'm hesitant to give this one a full-throated endorsement, because I hate the Class F shareholders thing, too much like feudalism, but right now the numbers do look good. If you can get Palantir for around 10 bucks or ideally less on a pullback, you got my blessing to buy it. Just don't pay up too much for this one. There's too much mystery to it and too much selfishness, too, at least when it comes to corporate governance. Let's go to Arbon in New York. Arbon. Hi,
2: Jim. How are you doing? I am doing well, sir. How about you? Doing good. Thank you. I really appreciate you allowing me to ask my question of live course. on the show. Of uh, course. I really enjoy the show. Thank you. My question is related to uh, Broom and the e-commerce car buying space as a one-to-one-and-a-half-year investment. What's your opinion on
0: that? This is a tough one. It's a tough one because uh, I i, I am a CarMax guy. Uh, I think that Vroom's good. I am also, by the way, a Carvana guy. Uh, I don't want to go down to Vroom, even though a lot of people think Vroom's better. I like those other two that I just mentioned, even though these guys have some very smart people working for them. Let's go to Sam in Tennessee, please, Sam.
2: Hey, Jim, quick question. Sure. With Beyond me price target being downgraded. What does that say for the FMCI merger with Tattoo
0: Chef? Look, I... What is your price target for Tattoo Chef Hearst merger? uh, I'm not... Look, I mean, this is one of those, again, you know, I I am not a Tattoo Chef guy. I've looked at the stock. A Tattoo Chef guy. I am a Beyond Meat guy. I think Beyond Meat is the best of breed in that segment. So I am just going to reiterate that I think Beyond Meat, which held up under a huge onslaught of people not liking it, is the winner in the category. All right, Palantir's direct listing is a big deal. I can't give you my full blessing unless you can get it for around $10. Hey, much more man money ahead, including my take on Costco. What can the big box retailer signal about the COVID-19 pandemic? I'll reveal it. Plus, time to turn in some homework. Don't miss my take on some under the radar names I learned from you, Kramerica, And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Whenever you stump me by calling in to ask about a stock that I'm not familiar with or that's fallen off my radar screen, I always promise to do the research and get back to you with a considered response. But 2020 has <laughs> been a crazy year. and We've fallen behind or, or our homework is late. And tonight we're going to play catch up. Let's start with Tim in New York. On August 5th, Tim asked me about a company called 8x8, which aptly trades under the symbol EGHT. Now, this is the rare cloud stock that's like the broader market. 8x8's Eight had another play on contact center software, much like 5.9 9 or RingCentral, except those stocks are fabulous performers and 8's been a disappointment. This thing peaked at 26 bucks about 14 months ago. Since then, it's had a wild ride, sinking to $10 after the COVID crash in March, then briefly rebounding to 20 in May before coming back to 15 and changes up today. 8x8's Eight nailed down almost 16.5% for the year as a cloud stock. RingCentral, by contrast, is up 60% because their contact center and video conferencing software is very much in demand thanks to the pandemic. So what's happening with 8x8? Why has it been such a laggard? It's not rocket science. Ring Central and 5.9 are both growing much, much faster with much higher margins. When this company reported in late July, they delivered a slightly better than expected quarter with in-line guidance, and the stock got hammered because the results were good, but not good enough in that red-hot business. When I say not good enough, let me put this in context. When we talk about the sulfur as a service place, there's a quick rule of thumb that makes it easier to separate the wheat from the chaff. I always use it as something its a shorthand that I keep in my head that we do before we come out here. So you take the revenue growth of this rule of 40, the revenue growth, then add the EBITDA margin. That's the percentage of sales that they keep as earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. If the sum is more than 40. The stock's worth of consideration. If it's less than 40, you can actually ignore it. The idea is that there are two ways to win in the cloud space. You can lose a lot of money as long as you've also got very fast revenue growth, or you can have slower growth as long as you're turning a decent profit. But if you've got slow growth and you're unprofitable, well, that's a losing combination. The other contact center, uh, contact center cloud players like RingCentral and Five FiveNomBody they both passed the Rule of 40 test. Eight by eight, though, it's got 26% revenue growth, very slow for a software-as-a-service play, coupled with a negative 5% EBITDA margin. Negative. Forget the rule of 40. It would barely pass the rule of 20. Not that there is a rule of 20. Throw in the fact that 8x8 gets half of its small sales from small businesses at a time when most small businesses are in real bad shape. And it's easy to see why this stock's been such a poor performer. The best thing you can say about 8x8 is that it is inexpensive, selling for just three times sales. But as I see it, that's an ominous sign that investors are about. Remember, they're worried about the numbers, so they're not paying up. I mean, maybe someone would buy the company itself, but uh, that's my only fear to tell you to forget about it, is that maybe someone buys the company. If you want a cloud-based contact uh, center stock, you're better off sticking with the higher quality names, like Kramer, Favoring Central. although you might want to wait for more of a pullback after today's cloud rebound. Next up on August 12th, John in Georgia called about Spartan Energy Acquisition Corp. This is one of those special purpose acquisition vehicles that announced plans to merge with Fisker. And that's an electric vehicle play that I get a lot of comments about in, at, uh, at Jim Cramer on Twitter. It's happened earlier this summer. Now, we've seen a bunch of these ever since the initial success of, of Nikola, which was taken public by merging with the SPAC. Now, though, Nikola's imploded in the wake of some devastating fraud allegations that already caused the chairman and chief hype artist, who so is executive chairman, to resign. A couple of months ago, all these companies wanted to be the next Tesla. Who wouldn't want to be? Tesla has moved from 66 to, again, 400 and change it, 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 since November. Uh, now, you have to worry that, that, that any one of these, though, might not be the next Tesla. It could be the next Nikola. So let's talk about Spartan Energy and the company, uh, the company that it wants to buy, Fisker. All right. Now, a dozen years ago, Fisker Automotive debuted the first luxury plug-in hybrid car, and they started making deliveries in 2011. But in 2012, their battery supplier went bankrupt, and they had to halt production. Two years later, most of the business was sold to a Chinese auto parts conglomerate, but the founder, Henrik Fisker, retained the brand name and used it to launch a new business, Fisker Inc., Unfortunately, this guy seems a little reminiscent of Trevor Milton, the former executive chairman of Nikola. In 2013, Fisker was sued for allegedly misleading his investors. Apparently, he never informed them when he lost access to federal funds that the company desperately needed. The Department of Energy cut off access to a $529 million loan, and Fisker supposedly kept it quiet for a year. In 2012, Fisker did a private fundraising round. Then a day later, the company announced they were recalling hundreds of their cars due to battery fires, something management had allegedly known about for weeks beforehand. Suboptimal. Heck, when Fisker Automotive was founded, Tesla sued them right out of the gate for allegedly stealing their technology. Elon Musk had hired Henrik Fisker. Uh, to do body design for their first four-seat sedan. When it, then he's accused of using confidential information to start his own company and make a competing product. There's another similar lawsuit from Aston Martin. Hey, at least fisher has got good taste. There's that, a whole lot of controversy here. It's one thing to fail and then try again. It's another thing to fail, allegedly lie to your investors, and then try to do it again, but this time as a public company. Worst part of the story? Just like Nikola, Fisker feels like a business plan in search of a business. When Phil Lebeau asked the CEO why investors should buy shares in his company despite it having no revenue and no plans to produce vehicles until 2022, he didn't really have much of an answer. Sure, Spartan Energy Acquisition has some smart backers like Apollo, but Nikola had some really smart backers, too. They got a production deal with GM, they got bosses on the board, a value act. Wow! Listen, after the Nikola meltdown, I don't know how anyone can look at another electric vehicle company with no sales and lots of fraud allegations and think it's a smart buy. You can't rely on these special-purpose acquisition companies to do your due diligence for you. I mean, we can try to do some, but them? Nikola wasn't really vetted by its SPAC partner, and I- I- I'm betting Fisker wasn't fully vetted either. If you want an electric car play, look, we've got one. It's called Tesla. Sounds good to me. Man, Mike's money's back after the break. It is time! It's time for the light round! What's up, Rap Gordon? What's the Center. Bye bye, bye. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Daddy? Time for the lightning round, crazy money. Let's start with Brandon, New Jersey. Brandon! Booyah, Jimmy Chill, how's it going? It is doing well. How about you? I'm great, Jim. So I've been looking at Boeing since last month, and they got great news today that their 737 Max play may return in Europe. An FAA chief will test fly the 737 Max next week. So, do you think Boeing is to buy right here at
1: 156 Yes,
0: per- yes, I think you can buy it. Uh, I know that Americans just got some money from the government. I know that they're they finally the airlines are waking up to be able to uh, test people before they go on. I don't know why they haven't doing that before. Uh, I know that masks work on planes. I know that, to, that we're, we're going to start opening up in Europe. I think. Uh, how can they? Ha- how can they dislike us? They're worse over there. Anyway, I don't want to make light of it, but I think you're right, to Boeing. Let's go to Lee in Illinois. Lee. Hey Jim, how are you? I am good, Lee. How about you?
1: Great. Jim, I wanted to ask you about General Electric.
0: Well, um, I think GE is going to be. Uh, it's not easier. Now, why do I say that? Because GE has said that. They're not ready yet. They're turning things around. I think they have a very good turnaround plan, even though they're obviously they're very linked to aerospace. It's going to take some time. This time next year, I think GE is going to be a much better stock than it is now, though. But a lot of people done aren't that patient. Let's go to Tom in New York. Tom. Hello, Jim. And booyah! Extraordinary. Extra- How are Extra- you? Extraordinary. I am well. How about you? I'm doing well. With the housing market booming and with with mortgage demand increasing, second quarter net revenue of $5 billion, with net income of $3.4 billion. what is your take on Rocket Company? Okay, Rocket's a very strange company because when it was at $18.90, I said, buy it. Then we're up to the high 20s, I said, sell it. And it's right back to 20. And I kind of feel like, hey, you know what? I had my call with Rocket, and now I'm ready to move on. There are a lot of people who are short to stock. They don't like the ownership structure. Let's go to Ed in Florida. Ed! Booyah, Jim. Booyah. My country, my my company is Red Hill Biopharma, R-D-H-L. Really? You know, look, I, I think you should be in royalty pharma. I think it's uh, every bit as good as Red Hill and then some. But I totally understand why you want to be at Smartest Railing Company, really smart guys. I just I think that royalty's not getting enough, uh, enough love from Wall Street. Let's go to Eric in Missouri. Eric. Jimmy chill. Yes. Oh, yeah. What's happening? Hey, what do you think about Walgreens, stock? It's been getting murdered for a lot is worried about Walgreens. Chilman is worried because they uh, I think the prescription drum side is under attack. And the front of the store is under attack from uh, Amazon. So I have a tough time with that one. I just do. I'm I, I, I trying to figure out what makes it go higher. And I don't know. How about Matt in Minnesota? Matt.
2: Dr. Kramer, uh, first time caller, big fan. Oh, thank uh, you. I wanted your opinion. Uh, your opinion on a biotech company that recently reacquired their previously held company, Grail, uh, which develops liquid biopsies for early cancer detection. That company is Illumina, ticker symbol
0: L-I-L-M-N. Okay, many companies have tried to do this liquid cancer uh, the, uh, the test. Uh, I hope Grail can do it right. If Grail can do it right, then Illumina turns out to be a great buy. But I like Thermo Fisher and I like Danaher, and they are better companies. And I like either one of them more than this one. I'm going to Justin in Michigan. Justin. Hey, Jimmy Chill. Happy yes. Action Alerts Plus member here. Well done. Glad to be Thank talking you. to well, you. How can I help? Uh, the company I'm talking about has a 19% ARR, 111% net retention rate, uh, a price to sales ratio of about 10. And they serve 60 out of the Forbes 100. I'm talking about Ping Identity. You know we like Ping. We've had them on. I think they told a very, very compelling story. Uh, I like this cohort as it is, and Ping is a good one. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round.
1: The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade.
0: It ain't over till it's over. Ever since COVID got rolling, the analysts have habitually underestimated the staying power of both the pandemic and the way it is changing our behavior. Even when a company like Owens and Minor, which makes personal protective equipment, tells us it's going to have a blowout year makes sense. The analysts take forever to go on board. When it comes to homebuilders like Lenard, they're being dragged kicking and screaming to stay on top of the earnings. Same goes for Darden, where they're, they're finally realizing that it's a last man standing restaurant situation. They assume we get the virus under control or it will go away or, or we, we get a vaccine much faster than plausible. So they're constantly m- missing some big wins. The ones that are really just call them the COVID beneficiaries. But the best example of the gulf between expectations and reality, it's Costco. The Big Box Club reported yesterday, and while the numbers were great, the analysts still got freaked out. They're worried about a spike in COVID spending to $281 million. They need to pay bonuses, and the number of new customers will stick with the chain once the pandemic is finally beaten. I say wake up. Unlike the analysts and most other chains, Costco has been one step ahead of the COVID posse the whole time. They were the first store with a no-mask, uh, no-service policy. At a time, and other chains were still worried about scaring away customers by making them do something inconvenient. Costco gambled that most people would welcome a safer shopping environment, and that paid off. Between their many efforts to keep the stores disease-free and the already wide aisles that make social distancing easy at Costco, this company's cleaning up right now, and that's how you get 11% same-store sales. That's a staggering number. Yet the stock went down. Because the analysts are skeptical, again. Oh, they've got a whole list of worries. Uh, Once shoppers have stocked up on toilet paper and cleaning products, won't they stop coming? Once COVID goes away, won't the new patrons go elsewhere? And hey, why the heck does Costco need to spend so much on keeping its employees safe and happy? Look, that was the undercurrent, okay? With all due respect, these concerns are moronic. Why? Let's start with the bonuses. Listen, Costco has always paid its employees better than every other store. And it's always been a good investment because it means they can maintain their best people, change to pay less, have much higher turnover, which means they need to spend a lot more time training new workers and those training costs add up. One of the reasons Walmart bumped its salaries a couple years ago is because they kept losing people. As for the COVID expenses, obviously they'll go away whenever the virus does. I think it's insane that analysts are fretting about how Costco will lose customers when the pandemic's over, while they simultaneously freak, freak, simultaneously freak out about costs that will also go away when the pandemic's over. That, that's absolutely moronic. Any loss in customers will be made up by improving gross margins. Uh, it, 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 Though, just to be clear, I, I don't expect them to lose many customers when this is over. It's not a worry I have. It seems to be a worry they have. So you've got to remember, Costco is a wholesale club. There are membership fees, and the customer base, has, as sticky as it gets, grows about 5% a year. I mean, what a business model. What happens to Costco when all this is over? Come on. They were doing great before COVID. They'll be doing great during COVID, and I'm sure they'll do great after COVID, too. It's called management. The most important thing to keep in mind, Costco offers the best prices in retail by far. They sell a relatively small selection of goods in massive bulk quantities, which allows them to give you incredible deals. Now, I don't know about you, but my home is quickly evolving into an outdoor entertainment center because it's the only way to safely interact with people during the pandemic. And after what we heard on the conference call, it's clear a lot of other people are doing the same thing. But now it's getting colder. So you know what you need? You need heaters. Costco sees the pattern. That's why they stock spiral flame patio heaters for $399. Sound expensive? Wait a second. The same product. Just check the sights sells for $599 on Amazon. You heard me right. They're undercutting Amazon by 200 bucks. Once the pandemic subsides, are you really going to go back to Amazon or any other retailer where you can get stuff for so much less from Costco? Not less, but so much less. All this should be obvious. What mystifies me is that we all know America has royally screwed up when it comes to getting the virus under control. Yet these analysts want to bet against Costco and the assumption that COVID will end soon? Ridiculous. I think they should be more concerned about what the competition's doing to win their customers back from Costco because they're not doing squat. That's why I think Costco's a buy-down here after today's absurd sell-off. Every quarter, the stock gets hammered by bogus concerns, and every time what happens, it bounces right back. And in the end... That's all you need to know about Costco. It's different, Kramer. You know, I've always had a fondness for cruising, and the cruise line stocks, after just being terrible, are starting to bounce. They got an upgrade today. If you are so uh, inclined, the one you need to buy is Norwegian. Why? Because Frank Del Rio raised a ton of money, and now he can ride it out. Like I said, as always, the bull market summer. I promise I just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you next time.